You're listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. Today we have a special treat for you that we call Sacred Nightmares. Over the next half hour, you will hear six tales of terror taken straight from the pages of the Holy Scriptures you thought you knew so well. Don't let your mind trick you. Though you may never have heard these versions in Sunday school, I assure you they were there all along, lurking on the margins of the page, watching you from the dark. But be warned, what you are about to hear is not for the faint of heart. Just as many horror movies come with an age restriction warning, so should these parts of the Bible. The imagery is quite disturbing and may change the way you read these stories forever. Now, on to the episode. Our story begins in a world much like yours. In fact, it both is yours and is not yours. The planet is Earth. The time? A long time ago. The world looks different. Humanity as a whole has remained in the Middle East, stretching out slightly in all directions, but mostly concentrated in that region. For thousands of years, your species has continued a cycle of brutality and hatred towards each other destruction of natural resources, and cruelty to the rest of the Earth's inhabitants. No one can be trusted. This is the tale of the Death Box. Picture, if you will, a far-off mountain, isolated from the rest of the world, a fortress against the incessant tide of death. But death finds a way. For on that mountain, a lonely man, withered and ragged from the centuries, breathes his last breath. No one really knew that man. Everyone he loved and cared about died long ago. He's been up on that mountain for what some say amounts to hundreds of years. The legends say he knew the one they used to call Adam. But those are just silly stories you tell your children before bed. For 969 years, this man eluded death. He knew he couldn't best it forever, and now, as his body falls to the floor of the cave he called home, a solitary raindrop jumps from the heavens. In an instant now, we travel across the scorched plains to the land of one Noah. Noah has a hobby. No, call it an obsession. He is convinced that he can talk to heaven, and that it talks back to him. He claims that over a hundred years ago, one of the gods warned him of impending doom, and gave him secret plans for how to escape it. Our man has spent the last century building this structure, a monument to the possible achievements of human passion. This Noah has built a box, a rather large box, a box bigger than any house you've seen, a box he plans to move into, a box he has been using as a private zoo for the last several months. Within that box, there is room for many animals, lots of food, and eight people, and eight people only. Over the next 12 months, this box will become a cursed salvation for Noah. He thought he was building a house, but in reality, he was building a coffin. A coffin where the dead float outside and the living die inside. The first five weeks were the worst of it. After just the first day, neighbors and countrymen rushed to pound at the door of Noah's death box. By the end of the first week, some had crushed and clawed holes in the sides of the box. Noah and his three sons ran constantly from section to section, filling in the holes and pushing out the people. Before long, the drowning screams of mothers and their babies could be heard through the walls. Day after day, week after week, the passengers of this death box huddled alone, their voices hushed in the dim light, 
their faces etched with anxiety and mistrust of each other. The isolation, like a relentless storm of the mind, wore down their sanity. At least it only took a few weeks for the outsiders to die. They were the lucky ones. Their death was quick. But this? Surely this was the greater punishment. Eventually the rain stops and the waters return. The land has been purged and the human experiment can start all over again. From out of the death box step eight very different people than those who we saw get on. They have the same names, but their souls have been fractured by the weight of their actions. Taking an axe, Noah marches back down the levels of the box, systematically slaughtering hundreds of the animals he had so recently cared for. Observe the haunting shell of this man as he piles their lifeless bodies beside a crudely made altar of stone. Look with pity as he dismantles the box with his axe, unbothered by the pleas of his family. Watch him as he burns the wood and then the animals. Hear his blood-curdling shout to the heavens for mercy. Only a year locked in a death box would drive a man, saved by heaven, to think heaven needs his sacrifice in order to be appeased. As heaven hangs up its war bow and Noah his axe, we advance several more years. Noah's sons and their wives have tried to start over, but the strain was too much for Noah's psyche. Memory is a treacherous thing and Noah's memory gave him a wonderful, awful idea that could make all this pain go away. And so, our new Adam builds a garden, and in that garden he plants some grapes. With those grapes he makes some wine, wine strong enough to make a man forget the horrors of a life he didn't ask for. If God wouldn't drown him, perhaps he could drown himself. But the memories never truly left, even then. They always came back haunting Noah like the ghost of the fallen body strewn across this new earth. No dose of this medicine could silence the voices in Noah's head. His bloated body slumps to the floor, naked and heaving. Avert your eyes out of respect for who this man once was, and hang your head for who this man now is. I wish this tale had a happy ending. But what do you expect of a man quarantined in a box for a year? What do you expect of a person forced to hear the death cries of a thousand women and children right outside his door? I ask you, would you not end up the same? Sometimes it's worse to survive. We continue on our journey through space and time to a secluded home in the far reaches of the land of ancient Egypt. Within that small abode hangs a body, a body still warm with a life that is slowly and painfully leaving its host. Now, before you judge his actions, judge his life. On the tail beside our subject sits a piece of papyrus on which is scrawled his story. This story. And it's called Dark Follows. If you're reading this, hopefully that means I'm finally dead. Never has a man wanted death as much as I, yet not been able to grasp it. You probably think I'm crazy, but I assure you, if you had witnessed what I have, you'd do the same. You'd likely heard whispered tales of those days, though none dare speak of them out loud. Pharaoh doesn't like when people talk about those weeks. He wants you to think they never happened, but they did. They did. I was there. As far as I know, I am, well, was 
The Last Survivor. I wish you could go on not knowing about any of this, but I feel like I must tell it in order to be free. I do not wish to think of this in the afterlife. Perhaps the dark will haunt your poor soul and leave mine in peace. I was but a humble servant of Pharaoh in those days. I was toiling under the scorching sun in the shadow of those colossal pyramids. He was a different man than the Pharaoh you know now, but they might as well have been the same. I served among his advisors, counseled him on tactics of war in particular. Life in his court was... it wasn't easy, it never was, but it became a living nightmare when the first portent descended upon us. The waters of the Nile turned to blood. A thick, foul-smelling ichor that choked the life of the once life-giving river. The fish died, the stench was unbearable. We were left parched and desperate, searching for the smallest drips of clean water to slake our thirst. Then came the frogs, an unending wave of amphibious torment. They streamed the streets, the houses, even our beds. No place was safe from their relentless croaking and the slimy touch. We could barely sleep, our dreams haunted by the ceaseless chorus of their voices. Our work suffered from exhaustion. There was a third portent that truly shook the foundation of our belief in the natural order. Dust of the earth transformed into gnats before our eyes, swarming around us like a living shroud. They filled our eyes, our noses, and our mouths. We couldn't escape their relentless attack, and our bodies were covered in festering, itching bites. And if that wasn't enough, then the flies came. So many flies! They infested our homes, our food, our, our bodies. Every bite was an open wound, a reminder of the relentless torment that had befallen us. We didn't know why, we couldn't figure it out. The stench of death filled the air as these cursed insects feasted on the rotting remains of animals and people alike. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that in the streets? You'd never forget it. Our livestock withered and died during the fifth plague struck down by some grievous pestilence. The animals' moans of agony filled the land, and our ears mingling with the cries of mourning from families that were losing everything. We watched our herds dwindle, knowing that famine was coming soon. The sixth portent brought with it a rash of boils that covered our skin, a blistering agony that defied all attempts at relief. Nothing could make it better. We writhed in pain, men, women, and children alike, scratching at our sores, but no solace could be found. Our bodies were consumed by this affliction, and still we couldn't escape the relentless suffering. As these portents continued, we realized that we were no longer dealing with natural disasters, but supernatural horrors. Fiery hail pounded down from the heavens, like a gang of gods pummeling our land with flaming balls of ice. While we were still recovering from that, a swarm of locusts descended on our fields, devouring every last scrap of vegetation in their path. I didn't even know there was anything left for them to take. Hunger gnawed at our stomachs, and despair filled our hearts. Our little ones were dying every day from hunger and disease. We never asked for this. In the end, in the end it was the dark that finally broke the will of Egypt. In the middle of the day, the sky grew dark as Ra himself faced the wrath of the Ninth Portent. We were cast into an abyss of blackness, a dark so... so thick, it was tangible. We were imprisoned in our own homes, 
unable to see or even move as the world outside descended into chaos. The sun would eventually shine again. I, I never felt its heat as much as I felt the darkness then. The dark, it, it was an, its own entity. It's a parasite sapping away at my life. It wouldn't leave me alone. And then came the final night. We'd heard rumors from some that, that death itself was coming for us. Like a flood, it would run through our streets, choking the last scraps of life out of our families. Whatever God commanded all this death had set his price. An unspeakable bargain to make even the devil wince. The life of Egypt, at the cost of every firstborn son. I was the youngest in my family, but I had a son of my own. I begged Pharaoh to do whatever he could to appease this god. But he would not bow. He never did. I spent the night with my family. We huddled, barely breathing, behind the barred doors and windows of our home. Then the dark returned. It seeped and oozed through cracks and crevices, slinking into bedrooms and stealing the final breath from men, from boys, from babies. The screams were too much to bear. I still hear them. The wailing of a thousand tears grew louder and louder as the dark approached. It slithered into our home next. I begged this god of darkness and death to take me instead, but it was not to be. I locked eyes with my oldest brother and... In an instant, his gaze moved beyond me. His lifeless body slunk to the floor. Before I could even react, the body of my infant son snapped in my arms. I tried to kill myself as well that night. But the dark wouldn't have it. It didn't want me. It didn't want us. It was only interested in stealing our futures, our oldest sons. We lost over half of our population in those days, and I lost everything, and every one that ever mattered to me. We were broken people, scarred by the horrors that we had witnessed. The portents left their mark on our bodies and on our souls, and the memory of those terrible days would haunt us for the rest of our lives. Like a spectral stalker, the dark always flitted about in the corners of my imagination, it was never close enough to confront. If it won't come to me, maybe now I can go to it. Face it head on and, and finally free myself from this curse. I pray you will fare better than I. And now, dear listener, we leave the body of this tormented man to rest. He was a man caught in the system of oppression that he both profited from and felt sickened by. A man not responsible for the evils of his master yet held accountable for that which he couldn't or didn't do. The horrors he witnessed were so great that even in the sun, the dark never left his soul. Humanity never does quite seem to get the point. Given enough time, even the heroes of a story become the villains. Our next three tales come from the dusty corners of a book you call Judges. Imagine the Wild West days, complete with sheriffs and outlaws, drinking and debauchery, fights and festivities. You've got a picture of the days when the twelve vigilantes ruled the land of ancient Israel. It was a lawless time, a time when everyone carried a weapon, and justice was meted out on a subjective basis. Welcome to a story of deception, and of a savior-turned-psycho. 
In a land oppressed by cruelty, one woman will defy her timid facade to become the architect of her oppressor's demise. Prepare to enter a world where the line between victim and victor blurs, where vengeance whispers in the night. This is the tale of a lethal lullaby. Act 1. We are introduced to a small village in the land of ancient Israel. For years now, its occupiers have been engaged in an on-again, off-again conflict with the previous inhabitants they forcibly removed. The insurgents are led by a snakish creature, one who calls himself Sisera. Sisera reports directly to King Yavin. He has one goal and one goal only. Recapture possession of his land. But in his way stands a prophetess turned warrior named Deborah. Beside her sits her lapdog, Barak. Together they rally the Israelite forces and push Sisera on the defensive. A few miles away is a quiet, shy woman named Yael. Yael washes the floor of her tent. Yael is in many ways the opposite of Deborah. She commands no armies and contentedly manages the affairs of her husband, Heber. And what can we say of Heber? It was an opportunist, a pragmatist. A man who saw no shame in playing both sides of a conflict so long as he could come out on top. He fears that his people will not be able to keep King Yavin out of the land for long. So, as we speak, he is on his way back from solidifying a tenuous peace with Yavin. Yael hardly approves, but she knows that a good wife is rarely seen and never heard. Yael washes the floor of her husband's tent. Act 2. Feet race across a dusty road. A man flees for his life. Sisera has miscalculated the military strength of his twin enemies. He dashes madly to find a haven behind his own lines. But the dust on the horizon behind him approaches faster than he can run. With few options left, he remembers the loyalty of one Hever the Cainite. The legends say that long ago a man named Cain betrayed and struck down his own brother. Well has Hever earned this moniker of Cainite, and well will it now serve the snaky Sisera. Approaching the tent of Heber, Sisera calls for his ally. Heber! Heber! I need sanctuary! From within the tent, Yael perks her head like an animal, picking up the scent of the hunt. She has always hated Sisera for the way he terrorized her people, but a good wife will honor her husband's loyalties. She pokes out and responds, Come in, my lord. Come in. Don't be afraid. Heber is still out, but I will protect you. Like a bleeding lamb, the great Sisera slinks inside and curls in the corner of the tent. Please, he begs, hide me. Bring me something to drink. They've been chasing me for miles. From outside the tent, one can see the dancing shadows of Yale's figure. She picks up a cup and pours some milk into it. Silently, she picks up another bottle and pours its contents into the cup as well. Drink, she croons to the crouching captain on the floor. He takes the cup from her hands and downs its contents in a single gulp. Please, don't tell them I'm here, Cicero pleads. Yale reaches for a rug and drapes it over him. Rest. This will hide you. Cup slips from Cicero's hand as he falls unconscious. Act 3. Yael looks across the horizon at the approaching dust. Deborah, she whispers. The faintest grin slips across her face at the thought of the warrior prophetess. She'd always wanted to live like Deborah, but that's not exactly easy when your father marries you off less than a year after your first period. 
Yale was sick of being told what to do and what to believe. And today she was going to change all that. Today she was going to make her own destiny. Stooping beside one of the ropes that held her husband's tent in place, she reaches for the peg and, with all of her might, yanks it out of the ground. She feels the blunt point of the spike and thinks to herself, That will do. Possessed by a will known only to her in fantasy, Yael re-enters the tent and hovers over the fitful body of the canine captain. She kneels beside him, uncovering his head and brushing aside his messy hair. Her body shaking, she smiles for the first time in a long time. Sleep well, my lord, she whispers, kissing him on the forehead. In one hand, she holds a rusty tent spike. In the other, a mallet. In precisely five seconds, the head of the Canite serpent will be crushed in the interior of Hever the Canite's tent. Well, it's going to take a while to clean. Yael washes the floor of her tent. It's the laughter that drew Devra and Barak toward the tent of Hever. They could hear it as they approached. There sat Yael, a strange mixture of disturbed and serene. Even the warrior prophetess felt a chill in her presence. Shortly thereafter, the Israelites rallied enough troops to defeat King Yavin and secure control of the land. Devra and Barak continued their military occupation for another forty years, and Hever was no longer welcome in the land. Regarding Yale, wife of Hever, she no longer exists. As the submissive servant of a traitor to his own people, she really only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over, probably for all time. While those who knew her before might think she wouldn't even hurt a fly, you, dear listener, certainly know better. After all, don't we all have that other half inside us? Given the circumstances, wouldn't we all go a little mad sometimes? In the darkest corners of biblical history, where the line between faith and horror blurs, lies a tale as eerie as it is tragic. Welcome, dear listeners, to a realm where the shadows of the past cast long unsettling echoes. For our next story, the time remains the same, but the location is on the opposite side of the land. There, the ancient Israelites are fighting another foe, the Ammonites, distant cousins from across the river. This is The Vow Unbroken. In the ancient land of Canaan, a vigilante warrior named Yiptak fights a never-ending battle. In his mind, he is fighting for the freedom of his people, but in reality, he has never stopped fighting the bullies of his childhood. Yiptak is the bastard son of a distant father. Unloved in his youth, Yiptak was the easy target of his community. At a young age, he ran away and never stopped running. He trained to become one of the greatest fighters of his time and over time he gained the respect of a ragtag militia of ruffians and outcasts. But what he really wanted couldn't be won with fists. Our mighty warrior fell one day on the battlefield of love, his heart pierced by the arrow of a woman's affection. Together they had a child, the pride and joy of Yiptak's life. Tanot was her name, and some say she was the most beautiful girl in the land. Tanot had recently come of marrying age, but Yiptak wouldn't hear it. No one would have his little girl. It was at that time that fate knocked on Yiptak's door. The very same people who had mocked him as a child sent messengers requesting his help in their battle against Amon. 
caught between the love of his family and the chance to regain the respect of his community, Yiptak made a decision. A decision for which he would never find the grace to forgive himself. He would march with his kinsmen against Amon if they would submit to him as their ruler upon his successful return. The people agreed, and Yiptak went to war. Our hero fought mightily against his foes, as only a man battling for freedom from his personal demons can. In the climactic battle, Yiptak made a solemn oath to the Almighty. He vowed that if God granted him victory in battle against the Ammonites, he would offer as a sacrifice the first thing he saw on his return home. The battle was won, and as Yiptak returned victorious to his home, he couldn't wait to share the good news with his family. But that joy quickly morphed into terror. Emerging from over the hill to greet him was none other than Tanot, his only daughter, his beloved child. Horror clung to Yiptak's soul as he realized the gravity of his oath. His daughter, a mere innocent in this twisted tale of faith, begged her father for a reprieve, a way out. Father, is there no other way? Must my life be the price of your vow? Desperation and sorrow danced in her eyes as Yiptak grappled with an impossible choice. In his desperation, he sought counsel from the elders of the land. Their only advice, don't go back on a promise to a god. But Yiptak couldn't lose his family a second time. Within his mind, a sinister idea took root, an idea that would twist the very fabric of his reality. No one would have his little girl. Yiptak was going to cheat a god. When the priests arrived to offer the sacrifice, Tanot was nowhere to be found. Where is your daughter? they demanded. We cannot risk the anger of our god if you go back on your promise. Climbing atop a cart, Yiptak addressed the crowd. My brothers, you are too late. I have already given her to God. What is this, Yiptak? What are you up to? The priest scowled. She was my daughter, he replied. If anyone was going to make the sacrifice, it was me. Tanot was a godly girl, who knew enough to follow the will of the Almighty. All she asked was that we be alone when it happened. Surely you cannot fault me for honoring my daughter's last wish. The people muttered, and Yiptak lowered his head with guilt. Indeed, our man had sacrificed his daughter to his god, though not with wood or fire. Sheltered in the mountains many miles away was a secluded convent of virgin women who prayed and prophesied to Yiptak's god. Under the cover of night, he'd sent Tano to join them. His only hope was that his god would accept the sacrifice of a life lived in isolation and abstinence for him. From that day forward, Tanot, the daughter of Yiptak, Israel's bastard king, would live a half-life, a ghostly existence, neither fully alive nor truly dead. No one would have his little girl. So what Yiptak said to the elders of the town was indeed true from a certain point of view. And so the daughter of Yiptak becomes a phantom, a legend whispered in hushed tones, the tale of a beautiful woman some claim to see on the mountains from time to time. Her name, her sacrifice, haunting the pages of sacred history. For years she languished as a prisoner of her father's unbroken vow, an unseen specter and forced servitude to a god who never asked for any of this. And now as you, dear listeners, tread the haunted paths of the past, remember the daughter of Yiptak for she is the embodiment of a vow unbroken, a story etched in blood and sorrow, and a chilling testament to the horrors that can arise from a faith taken to extremes.
Rounding out our trilogy of the vigilante days is a tale so grim, I wish I didn't have to tell it. Some horror stories make you jump in gleeful shock. Some are laughably absurd in their impossibility. And some, well, some are horrifying because of how real they are. This is the Gibeah Bonesaw Massacre. The setting, the threshold of a man's house. Late afternoon, creeping into early evening. Crossing that threshold is a man eager to leave. He wears the robes of a priest and the face of a man who could do no wrong. He sputters platitudes and niceties one is expected to say to family one could care less about. In his hand, he grasps the arm of a woman. A woman who has grown up in that very house. A woman he had purchased from her father a few years earlier. Like the rings on a tree, her growing number of scars mark the passing of each year. Her last hope was to return to the man who had raised her. Perhaps he would see the signs of her plight and protect her. But it was not to be. Abuse is a tricky creature, a shape-shifting menace that bears the devil's fangs to some while speaking with the lips of an angel to others. When wielded by a master of the craft, abuse can convince a normal, rational father to condemn his daughter a second time to certain death. And thus the priest and his sex slave depart the anti-sanctuary and begin the return journey to a place he calls home. As the sun casts its long shadows, the priest realized he wouldn't be able to make it home that night. In the final rays of setting sun's light, he noticed a town he perceived to be Gibeah. Entering the town, battered bride in tow, our holy man approaches an elder of the community seeking refuge for the night. Glancing about nervously, the man looked over the woman and back to the priest. Who is this woman? What has befallen her? He inquires. The priest hastily responds, She is my concubine. We are on our way home, but didn't get quite as far as I'd hoped. We decided to stop here for the night, and we need a place to rest. You understand. With a grunt, the elder nods. Very well. Come with me. These aren't streets you want to be on after dark. You're welcome to stay with me for the night, but I want you out by dawn. This town doesn't take well to strangers. As the light of the elder's house flickered warmly, a chilling darkness encroached upon the woman. Barely conscious, she knew only survival. Maybe next time she could run somewhere else. Maybe not. If home wasn't safe, where was? Maybe she should just die. Maybe she should take that sick priest with her. Maybe he won't actually be so bad this time. Maybe he'll learn and be better. Maybe. The setting? The threshold of a man's house. As they enter, a woman flits nervously about, her shoulders slouched, and her face the sign of a victim who gave up many years ago. She briefly makes eye contact with the priest's property, recognizing her story in a moment's glance, and turning away before her crashing tears could be seen. Her conscience calls to her, but her guilt silences. Out of the cracks and crevices of the city streets slither a stream of ruffians, stirred by the scent of new blood. Like a predatory creature of the night, they canvass the city and surround the elder's house, banging on the door and bending its panels. Bring out the priest and let us see if his god will hear him, they shout. The priest hovers in a corner, averse to the concept of falling prey to the whims of the mob. Sir, he cries, you brought us here. You have to protect me. The elder's stomach churns as he heaves a deep breath and cracks open the door. Gentlemen, gentlemen, he calls out. What are you doing? You know the laws of our land. 
The priest has sought sanctuary within my walls. If word got out that I let anything happen to my guest, what would other people say of our town? I'd sooner send out my own family than this guest who has trusted me. Crowd murmured their disapproval as a voice from the mist shouts, Then give us the girl! A few of the men shove against the door to get a better look at her. Her dull eyes suddenly awake with fear. She clutches at her owner, begging for the slightest sign of favor or even concern. But his face is as cold as the heavens have been to him. Take her, he mutters. She's been nothing but trouble anyway. The town's elder lays a hand on her shoulder. I'm sorry, my dear, he whispers. But no. And what was said from there, we will never know. For her shrieks drowned out even the roar of the crowd outside. The elder fed her to the ravenous crowd and locked the door behind him. And sitting down, he looked up at the priest, smiled politely, and asked, Shall we finish our meal? The setting, the threshold of a man's house. The first light of dawn illuminates the bruised and abused body of a young girl. She lies naked in a pool of every bodily fluid imaginable. Her hauntingly lifeless eyes stare at the sanctuary just inches from her face. The door opens, and the priest walks out. The sight of his property, battered and used beyond recognition, seems to have no effect on him. He picks up her body, places it on a mule, and returns to his home. But the journey darkened his mind. When one treats another human as mere means to an end, he is one short step away from madness. And mad does not begin to describe the mental state of this man. Grabbing a serrated blade, the reverend chopped off twelve pieces from the corpse's body. He meticulously wrapped each in the straps of cloth that used to be her robes, and sent them to the rulers of the local tribes. What proceeded from there is a tale of a civil war that almost wiped out a nation. Brother fought against brother, and lost. And so we learn that not all who wear the cloth are cut from the same. A sanctuary for some is a sanctuary for none. If only those of your kind can find rest within your walls, beware, for the day may very well come when you also are cast outside the locked door in the name of God. And for you who are still inside, when the hurting are right outside your door, how will you silence the screams in your mind? I must admit, I am surprised you made it this far. The human form doesn't take well to such concentrated time distortion. But I have one more tale I must share with you today before we part ways. For deep within the pages of the Bible, where faith and horror converge, lies a story both chilling and disturbing. I present to you The Haunting of Gadara. In the ancient land called Gadara, a man known to all as the Maniac roamed the tombs of the town, his soul a prison of madness, his body unwelcomed in civilized society. His cries filled the night, haunting the dreams of the townsfolk. Possessed by demons, the Maniac wanders the hills, living among the dead, a wretched soul forsaken by both God and man. Once upon a time he had a name, but it has long been forgotten. How he became this abomination, we will never know. Parents in the neighboring village told their children this is what become of boys and girls who don't listen and obey. Rabbis warned their congregants that this is what happens to those who reject Yahweh. But no one ever asked the maniac. 
No one ever truly knew. And why should they? He was more demon than man now, twisted and evil. One fateful day, as the maniac howled in torment among the graves, a group of travelers arrived by boat from the nearby sea. Among them was a robed figure, a healer, some would even say a miracle worker. Motioning for his associates to stay in the ship, the cloaked deliverer began his climb up the perilous cliff face toward the realm of the dead. Though he could not yet see the man, the maniac discerned his presence, or rather, the creatures within him did. Every step of the approaching exorcist threw the maniac's body into a fitful rage, convulsing him across impossible distances in a mere second. Now atop the hill, we observed two figures poised opposite one another. The holy man could finally see his target, the one he'd heard so much about, the one he'd come to confront. His form was barely recognizable as human, his skin disfigured and distorted across its bare body. The maniac stood, a hunched guardian in front of the tomb he called home. Abandoned by the town, the land itself gave more the impression of a gateway to hell than anything else. Nearby, a herd of pigs rustle, unsettled by the storm. The rabbi reaches into his tunic and pulls out a scroll. By the light of his lantern, he reads in as loud of a voice as he can muster, Blessed be the Lord, who executes righteous deeds, crowning his saints with loving kindness and mercy. The maniac hissed, his body lurching forward. My soul cries out to praise your name, to sing high praises for your loving deeds, to proclaim your faithfulness. A praise of you there is no end. Near death I was for my sins, and my iniquities have sold me to the grave. But you saved me, O Lord, according to your great mercy and according to your many righteous deeds. Thunder crashed, though no clouds could be seen. The rabbi continued, Indeed, I have loved your name, and in your protection I have found refuge. When I remember your might, my heart is brave, and upon your mercies do I lean. Forgive my sin, O Lord, purify me from my iniquity. Vouchsafe me a spirit of faith and knowledge, and let me not be dishonored in ruin. Let not Satan rule over me, nor an unclean spirit. Neither let pain nor the evil inclination take possession of my bones. For you, O Lord, are my praise, and in you I hope all the day. The maniac's head lifted mechanically. His mouth curled in a menacing grin, but otherwise motionless. From within, a voice growls, Let my brothers rejoice with me and the house of my father, who was astonished by the graciousness. I know the song, Rabbi. Did you think I wouldn't? Your god is silent, Rabbi. He has been for a long time. Bones bend and joints crush, as the maniac is puppeted on all fours and rushes the priest, forcing him to lose his balance and tumble off the cliff's edge. As the man's body is impaled on the rocks below, the boat he arrived in snaps in two and the crew drowns in the chaotic sea. From the cliffs above, the maniac observes with forced glee the carnage he never meant to cause. So many rabbis over the years tried, and each one failed. Our subject gave up hope long ago. Now, he exists to be the plaything of devils, ancient creatures intent on spreading their misery and unafraid of any wandering traveler, be they god or man. If you ever find yourself in the region of Gadara, beware, for there exists among its residents a man demonized as the untouchable other. He is to be avoided at all costs, lest his evil infect you as well. Only a fool would approach him. Only a fool would seek his well-being. 
Perhaps one day, this man will be given another chance to battle his demons. But for tonight, he lives among the damned. A chilling reminder that the dead don't die, but they can take you with them. You've been listening to the Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provided a spooky place for you to consider these Bible stories in a way you definitely won't hear them told in church. Scripts for our series today were written with the help of AI. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can go to our website, thebibleuncut.com, and click on the Support Us tab. While you're there, check out the recommended resources and blog where we post show notes and other articles. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.